0: Welcome to Right Rising. Today features a special episode hosted by the CAR Populism Research Unit. I am your host for today, James Downs, and I'm a senior fellow at CAR and also head of the Populism Research Unit. On the CAR PRU Right Rising podcast, we have previously taken a deep dive uh, for the Populism Research Unit into different populist and radical right parties. Firstly, we looked at Western Europe with episodes on Italy and Germany, alongside a recent episode on Central Eastern Europe. Where we focused on the rise of the radical right in Hungary. Today, we are delighted to have with us two renowned experts on the radical right, Dr. Meta Wigan and Dr. Maureen Eger. Dr. Meta Wigan is a lecturer in teaching and scholarship in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Meta is also a senior fellow at CAR. Meta's main research interests are neoliberalism, the mainstreaming of radical right ideas, poverty, precarity, and welfare chauvinism. META also focuses upon widening participation in higher education, as well as engaging young Europeans in politics and society. Dr. Maureen Eger is an Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at Umea University in Sweden. Maureen's research interests lie broadly in political sociology, with an emphasis on immigration, nationalism, and the welfare state. Maureen is also a Senior Fellow at COP. Welcome to Right Rising META and Maureen. It's really great to have you on the show, and it's an absolute privilege. I wanted to start off with an important backdrop question for you both. The fact that many of our listeners on Right Rising may not be that familiar with the political landscape in Scandinavian politics, or indeed across Scandinavia, or even the different types of radical right parties that we currently see vying for political competition across Scandinavia in a number of countries. So I'll start off with my first question for you, Meta. And the first question is, could you give our listeners a quick rundown about the country case of Norway? For example, who are the main radical right parties or radical right party in the Norwegian context? And secondly, what are the main ideological features of the radical right in Norway?
1: Thank you, James. The As you say, the, the main radical right party in Norway is the Progress Party. And it was, uh, but it was founded by a different name in uh, 1973 as a libertarian anti-red tape single issue you know, protest party. I actually copied the name from the Danish uh, party that was created in '72. And the Norwegian version has never been as radical as the Danish party or the the later Danish um, People's Parties, for that sake. uh, It's it's always been more moderate. Um, um, I think the Scandinavian parties, both the Danish and the Norwegian, are probably the most popular or successful uh, radical right parties in, in Europe. Um, for the, in, in Norway, for example, they have been shaping the political ag- agenda and actually contributed to, to shift their whole spectrum of parties much further to the right than they were before you know it's a long time we're talking about but still. Um, they've also been in a government coalition with the mainstream conservatives, um, the, the right party uh, for six years um, and a bit. Between 2013 and 2020. Uh, but compared to radical right parties in Europe, they have been uh, very moderate, not just in comparison to in Denmark and, and the Sweden Democrats, for that sake. So many academics actually disagree with labeling them radical right at all. Uh, and uh, immigration, that's so prominent now and the most important electoral issue in Norway in the last elections, anyway. Um, um only became part of their ideology in the in the late 1980s. Uh, the other thing is that this party doesn't have direct links to Nazism or fascism, similar to the Danish party, very different from the Sweden Democrats. Um, but still, you know, they've because they were the party that's of any significance furthest to the right. They have always attracted a lot of extreme right support, and the links, of course, between both activists and politicians to, to more radical groups. Um, it also became a professional party very um, very early on under the leadership of the of the of them the guy who took over in the late 70s, Carly Hagen. He aimed very successfully to expel most radical members and activists from the party, even MPs. And he always wanted responsibility and and power. They wanted to be in government. They didn't want to be a a, a protest party at all. But it took them about 40 years um, to be accepted by the other political parties, like mainstream, in national politics, they have been in coalitions on the local level, level both with the right and the left, much longer, um, as they were seen to be far too extreme. Not because of racism, but because of their economic policy, liberalism and the quest for privatising public sector, tax cuts, centralization. Those were the reasons that, that they were seen to be radical before the, in the 90s, really. They also, you know, when it comes to ideology, they they have always had this kind of ideological conflict between the uh, two two main factions, the libertarian faction that kind of ended come the 80s and the more anti-immigration and now welfare chauvinistic uh, um, wing, and they actually call themselves uh, a liberal uh, people's party. Um, and I, to be honest, they are, you know, they, they are radical, especially on immigration now. But I find it difficult to see much of a difference between them in terms of of extremism and, and racism than um, the Tories, for example. You know, they, they are not worse than the Tories. Um, They've also been very consistent in keeping the programmes free of racism and xenophobia. But of course, what politicians say is different from what Their manifestos, say, Uh, for example, um, more than 10 years ago now, the the leader just stepped down now recently, um, Siv Jensen, she introduced sneak Islamization into the Norwegian language. And and also, um, you know, they have a few convicted criminals in, in their Ranks. For example, there's an ex MP who who has a conviction um, for attacking an asylum seeker. So that's pretty extreme. Um, And then, you know, over the years, they've become more and more um, anti immigrant and radical in that sense. They also distance themselves from radical right parties on the continent, not only from from Sweden. but Steve Jensen, um, who was a leader, uh, said only a few weeks ago that the uh, Progress Party doesn't have any sister parties in Europe. She said they are unique. And in the past, when I've asked politicians uh, from the Progress Party about the Front National, for example, or the Sweden Democrats, they get very upset because they don't have anything to do with them. They're not like that, they say. But I think they have become closer. I think they have become much more similar to those parties in Europe. Um, And also much less focus on on the economy, on cutbacks and privatisation than there were. Um, So they have definitely become more populist and welfare chauvinist, Um, ethno-pluralist, I would say, but they're they're not anti-EU. So that's also made a big difference between them. Um, there's something interesting going on at the moment because the, it, the, the populist, um, ethno-pluralist faction of the party seemed to have won. It also led to the to them leaving the government um, a bit more than a year ago. Uh, it's, and they have a new leader called Sylvia Listhoog. She is a um, charismatic, populist, evangelist Christian, also been named... Uh, the Norwegian Trump, she's infamous for her on and views on Islam, for example, uh, immigration and integration. There's a lot of focus on cost of welfare, um, that the, the cost is an issue and it should be, not be wasted on, on foreign immigrants, but it should be used for the elderly in Norway. Um, also very much concerned about Norwegian values, Um, And she actually once said that in Norway, we eat pork and we drink alcohol. So a really crude message there about us and them and that immigrants have to and need to assimilate to to be welcome. No room for for any kind of um, differences there. So that's the that's the Progress Party. But there is another party that has that has been in existence since 2016. Tiny micro party um, that's called the Alliance. That's uh, that's in the last few months have become um, quite prominent in the media. I would say they are anti-Semitic, anti-establishment, anti-globalisation, and they have. Joined forces with um, on the street with anti-vaxxers um, and the protest group uh, um, Stop Islamization of Norway, as well as the Nordic Resistance Movement, and we haven't seen the Nordic Resistance Movement on the streets in, in in Norway for a couple of years. Really, it was a it was a demonstration maybe last year with just two individuals. So this is new. It's also been found that the um, Alliance um, has tried to link young people from from schools, from secondary schools, to the Nordic resistance movement and to other neo-Nazi individuals and groups online. And this party, you know, is something really, it's not new, but it's new that they are in the news, and any, any attention is good attention for them. But, you know, that's it, I think, on um, on the parties in Norway. That's worth mentioning.
0: Thank you, Meta. Really, really fascinating kind of overview and backdrop of the Norwegian political landscape regarding the radical right there. And I think what our listeners will find very interesting, is you mentioned, about the Norwegian Progress Party being in a... Coalition government, for example, and then about how we've got these kind of ideological conflicts, and we've also got these other party, the Alliance, and also the Nordic Resistance Movement as well. And so, moving on to the Swedish case now, to the Swedish political landscape. Maureen, very in a very similar manner to my questions just now towards Meta, I was also wondering if you could give our listeners a quick rundown about the country case of Sweden. Again, for example, what are the main radical right parties or party in the Swedish political landscape? And secondly, what are the main ideological features of the radical right in Sweden?
2: Thanks, James. Uh, The Sweden Democrats, or its abbreviation SD, I'll refer to it as SD throughout this, is considered the main radical right party in Sweden. It was founded in 1988. And as Mette referenced in in her description of the Norwegian Progress Party, um, SD is largely understood as the political successor of earlier fascist and racist movements in Sweden, very different from the Progress Party. Uh, However, under the leadership of Jimmy Åkesson since 2005, SD has made concerted efforts to change its image by removing explicitly racist language from its election manifestos and also from political rhetoric. The party has also kicked out members with a penchant for Nazi memorabilia um, because like the Progress Party, they aim to be seen as a serious party capable of being in and even leading the government. Um, Is SD a typical radical right party? Well, much like other parties described as radical right, SD does not call itself a radical right party. Uh, Actually, Okusen also says the party is not populist either. Instead, SD describes itself as a nationalist party. I would say that its policy stances and rhetoric are consistent with a subtype of nationalism, one that's aimed at boundary maintenance. This ideology, which my colleague, Dr. Sarah Valdez, and I term neo-nationalism, doesn't seek territorial changes, but instead sees existing national borders, national institutions, and national sovereignty as threatened from outside forces, threatened by immigration, threatened by European political integration, and also cultural and economic globalization. Um, In Dr. Valdez's and I, and in our previous research, We used almost 50 years of data from the manifesto project to compare the content of Western European parties' electoral manifestos over time. Our analyses showed that the policy stances um, of radical right parties are increasingly consistent with the neo-nationalist ideology. And this is what sets them apart from other party families and also even radical right parties in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, Our research also showed that in the 21st century, the average radical right party increasingly articulates support for left-wing economic policies, which is a departure from radical radical right parties' neoliberal stances in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, So what about SD in particular? Well, these general trends for Western Europe are consistent with SD's stated policy preferences and their rhetoric. SD argues that immigrants pose a cultural and criminal threat to Sweden and a threat to liberal democracy more generally. SD also describes immigration as a threat to the economic sustainability of the Swedish welfare state, which is a national institution that the party claims it wants to protect. In fact, the direct translation of the cover of SD's 2014 election manifesto was, and I'm quoting the translation here, We choose welfare. The Sweden Democrats choose welfare before irresponsible mass immigration. Comparing SD's election manifestos to those of another Swedish radical right party, new democracy that was briefly successful in the early 1990s, makes clear that this type of economic stance isn't just a Swedish thing that characterizes all Swedish radical right parties. Um, SD's statements are on average left-wing, while the New Democracy Party was very much economically right-wing. SD's economic policy stances are also more economically left-wing than the Norwegian Progress Party, though the Progress Party is not as economically right-wing as it was in the 70s, 80s, or 90s either. Um, In a recent interview with the online newspaper The Local, Okissen said that unlike the Swedish center-right parties that it hopes to form a government with in the future, SD is not right wing. Quote, at least when it comes to economic issues. We like the Swedish welfare model. We'd like to have quite a big state to ensure that people have health care and things like that. And on that, we don't agree with the moderates. End quote. However, it's, it's clear that SD wants to limit immigrants' access to the welfare state. They are a welfare chauvinist party, which would be a clear departure from the Swedish model, which is based on social democratic principles of universal social rights. Thus, while pro-welfare state, SD is welfare nationalists, making them, again, very different from Sweden's traditional left-wing parties. SD had its electoral breakthrough in 2010 and has performed even better in both subsequent elections. Framing immigrants as a cultural and an economic threat obviously resonates with a much larger proportion of the Swedish population, whereas the explicitly racist arguments did not. Uh, SD has not been in government yet. But since 2014, it has been the third largest party in Parliament.
0: Thanks a lot, Maureen. So for our listeners, kind of listening back home, what really strikes me from both the cases that, that Meta and Maureen have just described now of Norway and Sweden is that we've got you know two countries that actually see a very large or kind of sizable or what we could call significant level of support for the radical right. And it got me thinking just now about... Uh, quite a famous article published by the the renowned scholar uh, professor Jens Rydgren when it was published in the early 2000s speaking about you know, how Sweden was was an exception in the sense that there was no you know strong level of support for the Swedish Democrats at all and you know fast forward 10 15 years I remember reading about and listening to the about the 2018 uh, national parliamentary election in Sweden and how the Swedish Democrats of course performed so well What kind of Issues like immigration, as, as you were mentioning, Maureen, and kind of this, this welfare chauvinism aspect as well. So, again, for our listeners kind of listening in back home, this really goes to show that, you know, when we talk about the rise of the radical right, we can see two cases here that really do seem to have large levels of support for the radical right, not just in the last couple of years, but with the Norwegian Progress Party arguably also doing well in the early 2000s. And what also struck me, just now was how both parties, you know, the Norwegian Progress Party, the Swedish Democrats, the SD, they actually seem to, you know, not want to call themselves as kind of radical right parties or kind of populist radical right parties, but they tend to use other types of labels as well. So that again shows you that these parties perhaps may be trying to do this for strategic reasons, for electoral reasons. And that actually brings me into my next question for both Meta and Maureen, which is the third question. and. One which I think is has, of course, we've all been living under the COVID-19 pandemic for well over a year now. And the first question here that I want to address is the COVID-19 pandemic and whether radical right parties in Scandinavia, have they managed to keep their focus on immigrants and more broadly the issue of immigration during the COVID-19 pandemic? And secondly, how has the radical right performed, electorally speaking, in, you know, Scandinavia, particularly in both the cases of Norway and Sweden during the COVID-19 pandemic? And that's a question for you both, Meta and Maureen.
1: Okay, uh, thanks, James. I think uh, it's very difficult for them because uh, the mainstream has uh, given in to their demands on 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 many levels, especially in, in, in Norway and Denmark, where they, you know, they're the demands for stricter border control, immigration control, etc. They, the mainstream is doing it, and even they, you know, they said it on put it on the agenda many years ago. But at the moment, there are hardly any any new immigrants so, or to complain about. So the focus is on the, on people already here. Um, and in Norway, for example, the, the the Progress Party has been very, very. Um, active in stressing how dangerous immigrants are super spreaders not caring not wearing masks celebrating having parties and weddings not understanding social distancing or other restrictions uh, that that natives um, would easily abide by and also they've introduced this this um, expression import infection so, but this has also been been taken up by the by the by the mainstream. I don't know if that's the case in 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 Sweden or Denmark, but in the, the Progress party initially called it immigrant infection. a bit like like the like the China virus. it's it, It's not bad, but that it was also used by by the press. I think it happened once or twice, like a headline in in a major national paper. But it was picked up on and changed, so you know people aren't allowed to say um, "immigrant infection" anymore. But import infection and the con- and you know the mainstream, the, the the government even is is giving data related to who has been affected, infected from where and when and what what areas, etc. Of course, we have similar things here in the UK as well. Uh, but I've been very very. Um, at the forefront of stigmatizing uh, immigrant communities, uh, as well as for, foreign residents coming into Norway from abroad. For example, after, after Christmas, uh, a Labour politician in the in centre of, of, of Norway uh, actually said that that now we have to brace ourselves because they, all the Polish people, are coming back from the holidays in like hundreds of, of, uh, of flights coming in a few days or something like that and clearly not accepting that Polish immigrants who work in Norway are residents in Norway, and they live and work there, but still trying to, to create some kind of, of a difference there as well. Very xenophobic. Um, also, the Progress Party has been very successful in um, in. Uh, Shifting legislation, for example, or you know, quick emergency measures, for example, they were the first ones to to demand that um, Norway would only accept Norwegian tests in Norway for for people flying in uh, because there was an issue with fake tests that were found. So they also that was another thing that were going on for about for ages, fake COVID tests from abroad. Um, and they also called for stricter rules on immigrant labor. But at the same time, this, they're worried about uh, small businesses dependent on workers from abroad. But they, I think that has come a little bit later now, trying to, trying to show their care about small businesses. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they celebrated that they go to parliament to uh, extend uh, time of residency for you know, immigrants in Norway. From three years to five years for um, to to get uh, indefinite leave to remain. Uh, so they're constantly pushing and 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 showing what they've done. But I think more probably with her research knows much more about this than I do for for all the countries. Thanks, Meta. Uh, well.
2: In uh, many countries around the world, radical right politicians and parties downplayed the pandemic and opposed public health measures that limited people's mobility or mandated mask wearing. Well, without getting too much into the hotly contested Swedish strategy, suffice it to say that Sweden's relatively liberal approach meant that SD couldn't rail against public health mandates in the way that other similar parties did in other countries. Instead, early in the pandemic, Yemi Okasen was the harshest critic of the Swedish approach among the opposition party leaders, even calling the high death rates in the spring of 2020 a massacre. So, of course, for political reasons, it's important for SD to rail against whatever the government is doing. But in this case, it was in a way that was very different from how radical right parties were handling the public health mandates in other countries. Right before the pandemic hit, SD was actually polling in first place for the first time ever. Uh, But polls now show them back in third place, yet a percentage point or two ahead of where they finished in 2018 when they garnered 17.5% of the national vote. However, something pretty major has changed in Swedish politics recently. The four center-right parties that between 2004 and 2019 made up a political alliance called the Alliance. So, not the Alliance that's currently in Norway. This is a this is a, this was a center-right political alliance. So, in 2019, the Alliance uh, broke up, um, and they've made clear that they will not campaign together in the 2022 election. Their breakup had much to do with the Sweden Democrats, actually. Specifically, the alliance had an internal disagreement about whether or not to rely on tacit support from SD to make possible a center-right government after the 2018 election. Along with the left party, two of the four center-right parties, the center party and the liberals, chose to back the Social Democratic and Green Party coalition to keep the Sweden Democrats from having any power. Now. Three of the former alliance parties, the liberals, the moderates and Christian Democrats, have said that they're open to working with SD to form a government following the 2022 election, most likely with the moderate party leader as prime minister. Though if SD uh, won the largest share of votes, I guess that would be something that would be debated. If this comes to fruition, SD would play an important role in shaping what Sweden's immigration and integration policies would become. The pandemic has been a moment where immigration has slowed almost to a halt. Uh, So SD, like the Norwegian Progress Party, uh, has used this time to focus on policy proposals that would make life very different for immigrants already in Sweden, and also apparently to make Sweden less attractive to potential future immigrants. For example, SD wants to make social welfare benefits contingent on citizenship, rather than residency or even permanent residency. Uh, And the party wants to introduce language requirements for permanent residency, uh, which would be a huge change, um, and limit residence permits on the basis of family reunification. Also, SD advocates for a change in refugee policies that Oakeson argues would mean that Sweden could effectively stop taking in any refugees at all and still be in compliance with international law.
0: Thank you both. Uh more, in a meta. That's really, really fascinating to kind of hear uh, again an additional take about the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly on both both countries, both country cases of of Norway and Sweden. And for, again, for our listeners listening in back home, what we can see here is that you know immigration has you know totally slowed clearly in both countries as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But of course, we do see the radical right parties. It seems in both countries still. Using these xenophobic messages, but you know, targeting kind of more different types of immigrant groups domestically in in both countries as well. There, so we can kind of see, perhaps we can call it an evolution of um, strategies. You know, kind of anti-immigrant sentiment strategies in both countries there. And we've actually seen, of course, varying electoral fortunes for different types of radical right parties in the COVID nineteen pandemic. Of course, there have been. Uh, a number of books published um, over the last year, but there's been a Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, a co-authored book uh, edited by Tamir Baron and Barbara Molas from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right that features a number of key contributors, and such as Professor Hans-Jörg Betz from Zurich, our colleague from CARL, who's also shown that there's been varying electoral fortunes for uh, different radical right parties across Europe. This has also been shown by... Uh, by Kas Müller and also uh, Jakub Wondries at, at the University of Georgia who have also shown how radical right parties at different stages of the pandemic have kind of fluctuated in the polls overall. So this leads into my next question, which is a bit of a, a crystal ball gazing question for you both, Meta and Maureen. But I was wondering about how do you both foresee or even predict radical right parties in Scandinavia, whether that's kind of Sweden, Norway, or even in other countries to perform Electorally speaking, in in terms of a post COVID 19 world, of course, it's incredibly difficult for us to make accurate predictions about elections, particularly with the wide levels of fragmentation, polarization that we see, not just in Western Europe, but across the whole of of Europe right now with anti incumbency effects and again, polarization and fragmentation. So I'm wondering if either of you could make any predictions um, about. You know the future of, of electoral fortunes for radical right parties in a post-COVID-19 world or political landscape.
1: Okay, I'll start. Thank you. Um I think it's depends very much on what the other parties are doing. It depends on the economy. It depends on you know when and if immigration is gonna take up again. But for for the Norwegian case, I, I doubt that they're gonna have have a time to do to um, gets much more support than they have at the moment because the, the Progress Party had in the previous elections in 2017 they had more than 16%. Their elections in September uh, and the party was polling at 8.4% only a couple of months ago. Now with the new leader, they're up at 12%. Uh, not entirely sure about the reason for that yet. But, you know, I think they're going to be hard pushed to do particularly well in the next elections, especially because the mainstream keeps sealing their issues. Um, the parliament just agreed to, agreed on a massive crisis package from the Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example, because Norway has all oil. Um, and uh, the Progress Party has always demanded that Norway should use more of the oil money for welfare. And um, for roads, for example, but they're not getting the credit for it—not even now, uh, even though it's been on their agenda for decades, I think. Um, but I worry a bit more than I would like to about this um, this Alliance Party um, because they are going to stand in for election in eleven in all eleven counties, and because they're a political party, uh, they get state funding as as parties do there. Um, and this is in a climate of in, an increase in in um, hatred and um, um, attacks online, especially. Um, and it's you know remember it's it's now uh, nearly ten years ago since the political attack and massacre at Utaya. Um, And the mainstream really hasn't done enough to confront hate speech racism, and especially on the internet and and the media. In newspaper columns, for example, comments after articles is really vile. Um, And there was another attempted terror attack and a racist murder by right-wing extremists in 2019, if you remember. And it didn't shake the political system as much as I had expected. It's kind of fizzled out and there was very little interest, I think, uh, also from, you know, looking at it from abroad. Um, so radical right activities online and in newspaper comments continue to be legitimized by lack of action from the mainstream. Um, if they, uh, the, attack, the, the attacks are on targeting uh, the left uh, left-wing politicians and and um, comment um, commentators, but also immigrants, all very openly, especially um, minority politicians as well, and that's got worse uh, with COVID uh, and, and the rhetoric that the, the right has been using. Um, it's particularly worrying, I think, that survivors from Utea and uh, family members um, of um, of victims have been exposed to hate mail. And social media attacks and death, even death threats. And you know, this is has not been dealt with properly. Um, um Utoya survivors have even been accused publicly um, by both politicians and, and the journalists for playing the Utaya card. But they are now the the, the Labour Party Youth Movement, RF. Mm-hmm. They have um, published a book with articles from survivors and family members, um, and they demand they have got some, quite a lot of media attention around that. Not enough, I think, but they're demanding that there should be a stop to the hatred online and and in the media. Um, but I, you know, I worry that the lack of action um, and the fact that the Progress Party as is been, become more or less part of the mainstream or the establishment, has left space for the alliance. So it's going to be very interesting uh, and worrying to, to keep an eye on them, I think. But of course, uh, that also depends on, on what happens uh, next with with um, refugees, for example, um, post-pandemic. Uh, but it will definitely benefit the alliance, I think. You know, And this is something that Maureen has done a lot of research on, I think. Uh, well, I actually have read that article on uh, on um, immigration predictions post pandemic. So, over to you, Maureen. Thanks. Yes, I. It's a it was a strange exercise uh, to
2: formalize predictions about the future. I've never done that as a sociologist before. I'm used to analyzing data from the past, the recent past, but you know things that have already happened. And in the very first months of the pandemic, uh, my colleague, Dr. Michelle O'Brien, and I started thinking about how the pandemic could alter migration patterns and what this would then mean for anti-immigrant sentiment and for radical right mobilization and immigration policies going forward. Um, So we focused on these border closures, the border closures that were implemented initially to stop the spread of COVID-19. So an ex- we can think about this as a, like an exogenous shock to a system that's operating in a, in a normal way. and then this, this worldwide exogenous shock that led, to the, for the most part, you know countries all over the world to completely shut their borders. So uh, we decided to focus on what this would mean first for migration trends. So based on recent data from previous years, we were, we estimated that 7.5 million foreign nationals would have traveled to OECD countries, which are the largest advanced capitalist economies in the world. So 7.5 million foreign nationals would have traveled to OECD countries for work or extended stays in 2020. Um, we hypothesized that the larger these restrictions are in place, the larger the potential backup of what would otherwise be typical levels of migration. Demographic research suggests that when otherwise normal processes, uh, normal demographic patterns, are halted, such as birth rates during times of war, there is a rebound in those processes once it's possible. Thus, we hypothesized that a buildup of unmet demand for opportunities to emigrate from sending countries, and also demands from destination countries for foreign labor, um, would lead to a migration rebound or a migration spike in the months and the years following countries uh, lifting their COVID-19 restrictions. We also posited that these spikes in migration will then set in motion uh, sociological and political processes and outcomes including increased anti-immigration mobilization on the part of radical right parties. Although there is not a straightforward relationship between objective immigration and objective immigration-generated diversity and radical right mobilization, there is evidence from previous research that rapid increases in the flows of migrants heightens anti-immigrant sentiment, heightens the salience of the migration issue politically and can lead to increased support for parties with anti-immigrant platforms. I'm thinking in particular of research, of recent studies done by Kaufman on 2017 on UKIP and also Sorensen in 2016 on the Norwegian Progress Party. Thus, based on existing research, we further hypothesize that these combined processes may culminate in support for reintroducing restrictive immigration policies. So we think this would trigger a bit of a feedback loop and reinforce a cycle of migration suppression, migration spikes, migration suppression, migration spikes. Of course, these are just hypotheses. Our model is just you know theoretical at the moment, um, but we 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 sort of formalized this because we mean them to be testable hypotheses. So we published a piece about this in International Migration Review, which came out at the end of last year. Um, in which we outline a research agenda for how these ideas could be tested over time post-pandemic. Um, we see this as a really important area for future research. And so, in many ways, you know, personally, I hope we're wrong. <laughs> but we'll see. It, as as Metis says, you know, it really just depends on a lot of factors, but this should be, this should be a really important area for future research.
0: Thank you very much, Maureen, and, and also Meta for you know, going into very comprehensive detail there with your predictions, and really interesting as well, Maureen, to hear about your recent article published in International Migration Review, and you know about these these shocks and 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 kind of spikes that we see, and also coming at this from from a more sociological perspective. So I think our, our listeners should really check out um, that that latest article that you have in International Migration Review to find out a lot more there. And you mentioned that it's just kind of you know. Hypotheses and and um, you know th- that you have at the moment, but I think it could have some really you know this this work is going to have some really important implications as well when we we look at the radical rights in, in a couple of years time. So thank you very much both Meta and Maureen for a really insightful episode overall, and it's been great to have you both on the show. The final question that I have, it's not really a question, but more from the perspective of our listeners listening in back home on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whether Know, other platform, other platform that our listeners are, are look, uh, kind of listening to this episode from. So, where can our listeners find out more about your latest research and, and publications relating to the radical right? Do either of you have a, a, a Twitter account or a personal website that you'd like to let our listeners know about?
1: No, I'm not very active on Twitter, but I tweet, uh, I follow Carr and some others. Uh, and um, you know most of my research uh, these days goes into teaching and to blogging for Carr, Open Democracy, Fair Observer. Uh, I have a book in my head, um, but um, I don't really know what that is yet. But it's on these issues. So I'm going to work on that this summer.
2: Well, I too am on Twitter, but I'm not the most active member of the platform. So I'm not going to discourage anyone from following me. My, my Twitter handle is at Maureen Egger. Um, but they might be disappointed with, uh, how much I post. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll probably be sorely disappointed. But if people are interested in, in my research, I do, I do post on Twitter when recent things come out. And I also try to link to important work that colleagues are doing um, that I think people should read about and know about. Um, If people are interested in seeing more of my research in particular um, that I've done over time, probably finding me on Google Scholar is the best way to go. So just Google Google Scholar and my name. Or find find more on my university website. um, Uh, Department of Sociology at Umeå University in in Northern Sweden.
0: Thanks a lot both. And again, as we just mentioned, Maureen's got that that latest publication out. And as Meta also was saying, um, Meta's written quite extensively for open democracy lately. And I I remember reading a couple of months back, it was one or two months ago, a really interesting article about, again, Norway and this kind of new type of, of political party that we see in Norway as well. So do check out both Maureen and, and and meta's latest work there as well so the last thing for me to say overall is that this has been our, our latest episode of right rising and this is our episode hosted by the car populism research unit again many thanks to both Maureen and meta for coming uh, today to kind of share share uh, their latest expertise about both both country cases and for listeners back home we hope you've enjoyed today's episode and please join us next time and have a great day and week ahead. Uh, everybody as well. Thank you.